Hey, Sarah, it's Phil. Hello. Hi, I'm trying to get the, the video to work. I see the video icon, video camera icon. I'm clicking on it, but it's grayed out. Any uh, tips? Phil, do I need to teach you how to use your computer? Uh, no. Phil Nadell may not know how to set up a video call, but he sure knows how to advise startups in a crisis. And over the last few weeks, we've heard questions from founders from all over the world from just about every kind of business. I'm Josh Muccio, and today on The Pitch, we're taking calls where we talk about manufacturing, investment, even whether or not to list a restaurant on DoorDash. And what I love about this is we're hearing from people we wouldn't normally hear on the show. And we ended up with a pretty clear picture of just how hard it is to be running a business these days. Joining me on this call-in show are two investors, two listener favorites, the inimitable Sarah Downey with Accomplice, and someone who's been on our show for so long, he's become somewhat of an institution, Phil Nadell. They're taking your calls and hopefully offering some advice right after this quick break. This episode of The Pitch is brought to you exclusively by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's where State Farm Small Business Insurance comes in. State Farm agents are small business owners themselves, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. How are you both doing? I mean, I haven't worn real pants in probably three months, and I'm, I love it. Some people are really thriving in this environment. Are you oh, one yeah. of those? I think if, yeah, if you're, I think the three main factors are, are you an introvert? <laughs> do you not have kids who are young? And uh, do you, no, that's pretty much it. I, like, I, I don't have kids and I'm an introvert and I have a house that I've invested a lot in, in wanting to be a place where I spend time. So I literally have two PlayStations, an Xbox, a Nintendo Switch, an Oculus. I mean, I literally don't have to go outside ever that's amazing that's amazing so like yeah like i realize that you know it's a terrible time for a lot of people and we've been doing a lot with nonprofits here in this area and with our portfolio companies and like i i get all the negatives of it caveat but that aside like me being in my house in sweatpants for three months i'm i'm in my prime (laughs) (laughs) phil what about you are you just playing video games 24 7 now um nothing's changed for me i go to the office every day the only thing that's different is there's no one else in the office, pretty much. So, that's our first caller. You guys ready? Yeah, I guess. Hello, this is Shannon. Hi, Shannon. This is Josh and Sarah and Phil. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Josh Hello. and Sarah and Jill. <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> it's actually Phil, but you can call Phil, me Jill. Sorry. He goes by Jill in the off hours. You can call me Jill. I like that's Jill cool. better than Phil, actually. <laughs> Got it. Shannon, why don't you tell me about the business? Sure. So we actually started out as an in-person presentation and event software with the built-in sales enablement component. And so we take the presentations from the big screen, push them out to audience devices so they can interact in real time and let you convert them to customers, donors, or fans before the presentation's over. So you're taking like the PowerPoint presentation and you're just putting on everyone's phone in the audience. 
Yeah. So what we do is we push your slides out in real time to all your audience devices, whether it's a mobile phone, a tablet, a desktop, a laptop, whatever it may be. And the attendees can see the slides in real time. They can interact with those slides by taking notes, bookmarking them, giving uh, anonymous feedback via an emoji set. And we also have integrated polling and calls to action. That sounds really cool. Thank you. So we had been in beta pretty much all of 2019, where we had about a 1,000 users on the platform. At the end of last year, wrapped that up, and we were moving into like go-to-market now, right? And we had landed a big partnership opportunity with Tech Day, where we were going to be debuting our software to a 15,000-person conference. And there were a lot of other customers that we had been talking to that said, this goes well. We're very interested in what you're doing, but we want to see it live. Yeah, this is your moment. This is our moment. And then, of course, COVID hit. And we're a product for in-person presentations and events. And so everything ground to a halt. (laughs) I'm sorry to hear that. That's really tough, tough, tough timing. Yeah, and it, it also sounds like something that is ideal for digital. I mean, everyone is in these video chats. It's like I've been in some with hundreds of people. It's just like mind-blowing how we've all just adapted to this. Like, I know you built it for in-person events, but what you just described is so handy. (laughs) What about using it for for companies, startups that are actually pitching online? All these demo days now have gone online. Or these just regular events, like Web Summit. Sure, sure. They're all trying to make their conference happen online now. And I I don't think they're just going to be like, yeah, join our Zoom call. Yeah. Yeah. We had some investors that were pretty interested in us, one that had actually even started the due diligence process right right before all of this hit. And once this happened, most of the investors just went radio silent. Um, The one that was in the midst of due diligence has kind of been in touch, but not as regularly as I would like. So what's a good way we could continue to engage those investors or keep them interested during this time? I think it's just a matter of reframing the business. And and it's not exactly a pivot. It's the same basic software. You're just adding a few extra features to make it more appropriate for online use. Mm -hmm. I don't think you want to continue pitching the in-person component, because everyone's taking a pause on that and see where that shakes out, you know, in a few months post-COVID. Okay. Yeah. When you do reframe it, I would make this part of the story. Like, don't, I think a lot of people get kind of worried about the history of of the company and they try to uh, airbrush everything to look like success from the beginning. And no no story looks like that, especially with companies. Mm -hmm. So like, your story is you made this in-person, you know, event software crisis hit and you have the resilience and the grit to to change it into what the world needs now. And that is part of what will make you appealing to investors. I agree 100 percent, Sarah. I mean, investors love that. We mm-hmm. love to see that. Yeah, and I think like p- people are writing checks right now. It's definitely slowed down, to be clear. But we as investors are in the business of funding companies that we think are going to be great. That's what we do. And so I would I would suggest that you you tailor the story as we've we've suggested, but also increase the the funnel in terms of the number of investors you're reaching out to. Like you mentioned your indulgence with one 
just from my experience, you're going to need to be in diligence with a bunch more than one to get to the mm -hmm. check. So uh, don't feel bad about going after people asking for their time right now because this is what they do as investors. Okay, sounds good. I will definitely do that. Go get him, Shannon. You're doing great. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Shannon. Thanks, Shannon. Bye. Bye. All right. Next caller. Hello. Hello. This is Josh. Who's this? Hey, Josh. This is Kristen. How are you? Hey, Kristen. I'm well. Uh, Phil and Sarah are here too. Hi, hey, Phil Kristen. and Sarah. Hi. Hi. Well, what's what's going on? What you calling in for? So, just to give you kind of like. The quick and dirty about me. So I'm a single mom of two, and I started a company called CoTripper, which is an all-in-one community and family travel booking platform for single and solo moms, um, inspired kind of just by my journey traveling as a single mom. So we basically, we would partner with travel companies, specifically in like sustainable small group tours. So pre-COVID, I'd landed our first customer with Intrepid uh, Travel. We had a pilot that was going to roll out in spring and summer of this year. And COVID kind of just put an end to all of that. Uh -huh. So I've been in extreme pivot mode since then. Yeah, travel is especially tough to be in right Very now. Very tough space right now. So yeah. what are you thinking about in terms of pivoting? So a big part of our platform is the community portion. So we've pivoted to just solely focus on how to help single moms navigate through COVID and the new normal now that we're kind of all navigating through that. So kind of like a, a place where they can go. We have a weekly Zoom kind of standing meeting where I'm just trying to figure out what their pain points are, what they need, and figure out how we can, as a company, best serve those needs for now. You know, it, it seems to me that you have an opportunity now to build the community and don't think about, you know, earning revenue today, but think about building community online of single moms and expand the size of that community so that ultimately, let's say even six months down the road, when people are starting to really travel again, once you turn that on, you're going to have a lot more community members to to earn commission on for the travel. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly kind of where I was going with this pivot. Um, and I'm, I'm happy that you said, don't worry about like making money right now, because that's kind of like where I'm at. But I wasn't sure if like that was acceptable <laughs> to be oh, at it's, that place. It's so acceptable. And, and what you're doing is yeah. building trust and goodwill with them because you're not trying to sell them anything for now. Yeah. Are you able to do that though, Kristen? Not making money and like just building the products and like investing in the future makes sense. But like, do you have the money to to do that? Well, since COVID and before, I kind of contract as I'm an accountant. So like, I'm okay. I think the only thing that I worry about is that I'm a solo founder. So managing, working and kind of like ramping up the community, it definitely will be a challenge. Um, I was hoping to kind of like get investment by summer. So my plans are kind of derailed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, Phil, but if, if I were looking at this as an investment, I would be way more excited about a big community of engaged people than a pilot. 100%. I mean, you want engaged users. Size of community, if they're not engaged, doesn't matter as much. But also, I want to point out that 
by engaging the community now and sort of putting the travel piece on hold is that you may discover other opportunities, other needs that they have and want that you can satisfy, that you can organize for them. So while it may not be travel, it could be something else that you'll discover when you start engaging with a lot of these single moms. You may find out they need something entirely different, and then you'll be in a position to take advantage of that because you won't be married to the idea, no pun intended, single moms, you won't be married <laughs> to the idea of travel. You know what I mean? You you can pivot to any kind of um, revenue opportunity at that point because the asset you have is the community who trusts you and with whom you're engaged. So I think that's the real approach. In terms of the, the, the size of the community, it's more important that the number of people who are engaged and really into it. Well, that's actually what I needed to hear because I'm kind of in here toggling between do I need to be focused on revenue, but my heart is really in serving this community right now, like wholeheartedly. So I think that this is confirmation. Um, yeah. And I think that would probably be really important. Yeah, yeah. You really should. Yeah. I mean, Go you're serving your a real need right now. Like you can tell that these women really need this community and so do you. And that's the kind of thing that investors are going to really respond to. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. Oh, you guys are great. Thanks, Kristen. <laughs> See you, Kristen. Bye. You guys take care and be safe. You too. too. Thanks. Bye. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, more callers, including a founder who's having second thoughts about manufacturing in China. This episode of The Pitch is brought to you exclusively by State Farm. We talk to a lot of entrepreneurs on the show, and one thread that connects them all, they're not just pitching their business, they're pitching themselves. Because small business owners know that their business is more than just a company, it's their whole life. And State Farm gets that. State Farm agents are small business owners too, and they know what it takes. They can help you choose personalized policies to fit your budget. That's the personal touch. That's small business insurance from State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This episode of The Pitch is brought to you exclusively by State Farm. Small business owners know that it's not just business, it's personal. Your business is your life, and State Farm gets that. State Farm agents are small business owners too, so they know what it takes. They can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. And they live and work in your community. So you're not just getting an insurance plan, you're getting that personal touch. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Okay, here we go. This is Dan. Hey, Dan. This is Josh. And Hi, Phil. Josh. How you doing? And Sarah. Hi, guys. Hello. Hey, Dan. Where are you calling from? Smack dab in the center of California. What do you do out there, Dan? I'm a lineman for a utility. Um, I work on, work on high voltage and power poles and whatnot. Oh, wow. That sounds like an essential service. It is very essential, yes. I, uh, I'm, I'm scheduling work for the crews, so I, I don't have to be out in the field quite as much as I used to, but... Um, it's definitely something that that needs to continue happening. Yeah. What what are you calling in for today? 
Well, um, I have a product that I've been working on. It's a uh, hardware product. Um, had an idea when I walked out into my garage about four years ago, and uh, it was basically I had a bunch of uh, plastic storage totes stacked up against my wall, taking up all the nice space in my garage that I wanted to do other things. And um, mm-hmm. this idea sort of popped into my head to uh, create a product that would allow me to store those on the ceiling of my garage in a really easily and accessible way. Um, this is basically a product that allows you to make use of the space between you or the height of the person in the garage and the ceiling. Like you're basically utilizing the space below the ceiling as storage space. Yes, that's correct. I filed, I was granted four utility patents on it. Um, I've pursued it with all of my own capital, all in with prototypes and patents and everything. I'm about 200,000 into it. And yeah, it's, you know, and it's been one of those things where at every step I've, I've seen encouragement, um, I was sort of testing the the market with these Facebook ads, and it got picked up by this um, large social media aggregate site called Cheddar. And Heard they of it? Put it out. Okay, so they put it out on Cheddar Gadgets, and uh, it got like six hundred thousand views. And my Facebook page that I had set up exploded, and I had a lot of people asking where they could buy it and whatnot. Yeah, I was going to say, it, was it was the product live at that point? No, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, so essentially I was just getting ready to press the button and send over my capital to, to these factories in China that I had been working with to have the molds cut open and and start actually producing. And then all of this hit. And my question for you guys is I'm, I'm afraid to send all of my capital to a place where I feel like potentially tomorrow, if somebody decides to enact a policy that makes it more expensive, that's it. My capital's gone, and um, I, you know, I have to sell part of my company. Then, mm-hmm. yeah, Dan, I think you're insightful for for having that as a concern because, you know, I hear the same rumblings. Our portfolio companies that that sell hardware, many of them shifted their supply chain uh, or their factory sources out of China when the tariffs went into effect, uh, you know, a while ago. A lot of companies are finding that the made in America message is resonating with customers uh, in this time. And well, that's really interesting that you say that because I have gotten five messages today from people saying, is this made in the U.S.? Because if it's not, I don't know if I'm interested. What would the difference be for you in price to, to manufacture it domestically? Uh, about double. Oh, wow. And that's sort of after the cost of molds, which are far more than double. And, you know, just as an entrepreneur who's doing this myself with, you know, a day job and, and a family and everything, the mold costs are, are a huge barrier for me. How much? Uh, in China, I'm looking at about $33,000 for the cost. Of, for the molds to get set up? For the molds, yep. And um, stateside, I mean, you're, you're talking probably 150000 I would imagine, Damn. if not more. Wow. Damn. That's tough. But I think with the Made in America message, you have to really research what that is worth to you in the business because a lot of people say, buy American, you know, build in America. But then when it t- comes time to buy a product, like they're going to buy based on price. And right. like That's you have to exactly figure out, right. you have to figure out what you're willing to do around that. Right. Have you considered or thought about trying to partner? with a manufacturer 
who could maybe contribute the molds as some equity and then own a piece of the company or own a revenue share as a way to defer your, or to defray, I should say, your um, your initial investment in the molds? No, and that's really interesting because, you know, you're saying that. Uh, I hadn't thought about it that way, but they would probably also have access to distribution and ends with, you know, retailers and whatnot. So that's that's a really interesting thought. Um, I don't really know how I would start pursuing that exactly, but... Just start calling. Just start calling them and telling yeah. them about your idea. Get them excited about it. It's like pitching anyone else. And they do expect this. They see this like they would be a strategic investor in what you're doing. And this is the kind of thing that they are used to. I think the one thing to think about there is if you are bringing in a strategic investor, there are pros and cons sometimes. So you might be, let's say you partner with one manufacturer, you might be blocking partnerships with others who compete with that manufacturer. So just think about those in in addition as you're navigating this. Good point. Right. That's a great point. One last thought that might help you is you can use the patents with the manufacturers as sort of collateral and say to them, hey, look, if you know, if you put up the money and make the molds for us, uh, if we end up going out of business, we'll give you the, you know, the patents. Interesting. That's a great idea. All right. Well, thanks, Dan. Thanks, Josh. Love the show. Good luck. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. I think he's right about the potential for tariffs now coming yeah. back. And like general xenophobia being yeah. what it is right yeah. now. There's going to be a whole move to onshoring lots of different products. Yeah. Should this founder just wait it out then and just like maybe pause for a bit? No. You don't think so? No, I think he should find a domestic manufacturer. Even if that means he has to sell his product for like double what he would have otherwise? I don't think he'd have to sell it for double, especially if he's not incurring a cash cost uh, for the molds. It does also seem like a really good time for the Made in America message. And like plenty of people are stuck at home organizing their garages Oh, my wife has done exactly that. All right. Uh, last caller. Hello. Hello. This is Josh and Phil and Sarah. Who's this? Hi, this is Chris Murphy. Hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. Where are you calling from? I am from Cleveland, Ohio. Well, what's going on? Um, about two years ago, my husband and I decided to open up a cafe in our hometown here. We, it's a coffee crepe and a small thrift shop called Bruella's. Um, so over the last coffee year and, and a half. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. We've never had a restaurant on the show before. And collectibles. Yeah. So the whole idea was creating this character named Bruella, this old lady grandma figure who, um, you know, opens up a creperie or opens up a cafe and sells her trinkets in the shop. So, I love this so much, by the way. And <laughs> is she related to Cruella DeVille at all? Yeah, she's very inspired by Cruella DeVille, but like coffee instead. You know, oh, God. Okay, coffee instead so, yeah, of Dalmatian yeah. pelts. Instead of right, skins exactly. on the wall. <laughs> so the shop seats about 20 people. Um, it's kind of cramped and cozy and cluttered. We have one wall of just all these like golden mirrors. We have another wall with this big um, hand-painted just like black and white striped mural with shelves and all knickknacks on that. Very colorful, very unique, and very kind of vintage thrifty. So it's we've, we've had a really successful year and a half. Unfortunately, obviously, in the middle of March, we ended up closing our door 
we have not opened for delivery or to go yet because I have no infrastructure or logistics or understanding of that. Um, so I'm trying, you know, I've had a little bit of time and I'm trying to understand now that this can be an opportunity instead of a setback. And I'm trying to like brainstorm and figure out ways to bring that experience to the customer in this new kind of medium for us. You know, I'm just, when I hear about your, your business, I'm just afraid of what the restaurant industry is going to be like even post COVID, right? So firstly, you're talking about a relatively small restaurant. Most cities are going to impose social distancing requirements in restaurants saying you have to leave certain tables open, leave certain number of a certain distance between tables. Like after they reopen. Yeah. Once they reopen, then your capacity of 24 may go down to 12 and it's tough to get by when you only have seating of, of 12 but more so, I think there's going to be a trend where people are going to continue to be afraid to go into restaurants for some time, and they're already ordering more online, and I think that that is going to continue. And I think small restaurants are going to have a really tough time making it because sentiment has shifted and, and regulations will, will make it even more difficult. Mm -hmm. I, I think, like... If I were you, I would research hard what it would take to get on Uber Eats or DoorDash or one of these platforms. And, like, does it mean converting more of the space to a kitchen so you can serve more people? Um, like, what? Just, just figure out what it would entail. Gotcha. So part of the thing I wanted to kind of ask you guys, too, is when it comes, is, is there any way of bringing the experience kind of to the delivery circuit. Like, is that worth my time to think about what it's like when these crepes come to somebody's house and trying to engage them that way? Well, I, I think, think it is, yeah. I guess I would just be a little more cautionary and say that the food delivery business that when you rely on third-party delivery companies like Uber Eats and, and DoorDash, it's a very low-margin business um, because the Uber Eats of the world take a big chunk of your margin okay did you get any of the the government you know money like from the ppp program or eidl no so we have we applied for the ppp um we didn't get in any of that we ended up crowdsourcing just in the area through gofundme and we raised about three thousand dollars which covers our rent for a few months and that's great and it kind of gives us a little capital to start back up again yeah. you might also want to ask your landlord for some rent deferral yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's all these, I I've been trying to figure out which venue is like worth the biggest like chunk of my time. To me, I feel like we should all be brainstorming more to kind of crowdsource ideas. And that's when I feel like I'm missing in our community. Hmm. Yeah. I feel well, for you. I mean, I it sounds too. like it's like such a reflection of you and it was all going so well and it sounds delightful. And I would love to teleport to Cleveland to come <laughs> get some Bruella. But um, it sounds like you're being thoughtful about, you know, how to survive. And I think that's really what it is, is like survive until things get back to normal. And unfortunately, nobody knows mm. how or when. But like, you know, if you need to convert more to delivery for now, even if like Phil said, it's not a great business model, if it keeps you alive until you can do your thing right. again, like do what you need to do. And if you can hire some of your people back and yeah. like get them working again, mm -hmm. you know, like okay. that. Great. 
honestly, just talking to you guys and listening to the podcast and stuff before is such a like boost of energy for me anyway. So I really appreciate it. I definitely am taking a lot of this to heart and and I'm very thankful for all the advice. Oh, That's thanks. nice of you to say, Chris. Thanks. Yeah, I hope you hang Chris. in there. That means good a luck. lot. Thank you. All right. Thanks, guys. You have a good one. Bye. Bye. It's bad. Like, I have a favorite, like, coffee shop that I used to go to, like, two to three times a week. And even though it's it's right there and they're still open and they're doing delivery, like, I don't go. No. Yeah. And I feel I'm horrible. I'm telling you, the things are going to change even after. People aren't going to rush back into these small restaurants yeah. like that. Yeah. All right, kids. This was fun. Thanks, Dad. Bye. Bye. Have a good one. That's our episode today. If you're a founder or a small business owner and you've got a problem with the business that you're trying to figure out, give us a ring. The problem could be big, like COVID, or small and completely unrelated to COVID. Just call us anytime and leave a voicemail at 833-748-2448. All right, talk to you again soon. We'll be back with another episode on Wednesday, June 3rd. Pitch is hosted by me, Josh Muccio, produced by Muna Danish, Max Gibson, Heather Rogers, and Chris Neary. We are edited by Sarah Saracen. Scoring from Emma Munger, we are mixed by Enoch Kim. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you soon. This episode of The Pitch is brought to you exclusively by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's where State Farm Small Business Insurance comes in. State Farm agents are small business owners themselves, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.